0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of Cause High Vids. My name is Chris Horsfall and I'm a partner in the Melbourne Projects Practice Group at Cause. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, which is titled COVID-19 in the Construction Industry, Challenges and Opportunities. In this episode, two senior associates in our team, Alice Hayes and Sam Woff, sit down with two very experienced construction practitioners, Kiri Parr, who is the director of Curie Park Consulting, as well as being a senior fellow at the University of Melbourne, and Kevin Pascoe, who is the executive director of LaGuardia PCD. In this two-part series, the podcast will examine some of the themes in Kiri and Kevin's most recent article, which is titled Will COVID-19 Cure the Poor Health of the Australian Construction Industry? We will hear Kiri's and Kevin's insights, not only on the challenges that have come about as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also some of the opportunities it might bring. In this first part, we ask them to explain their reasoning as to why the construction industry was in poor health even before COVID-19. We also ask them to expand on their thesis that COVID-19 presents a once-in-a-generation opportunity to improve the landscape of the industry. They say there is no better time than now to drive strategic change. In part two of the podcast, Kiri and Kevin delve deeper into some of the challenges which the industry faces in light of COVID nineteen. As an example, while there has been an increase in government spending on infrastructure projects, border closures nonetheless impose geographical limits on labor resources, and are likely to impact on successful project delivery. Given this, we pose the following questions to Kiri and Kevin. What should the key areas of focus be for the industry in order to meet the demands and expectations of society? How can we work better and smarter? According to Kiri and Kevin, the answer is complicated, but worthy of interrogation and ultimately lies in a combination of leadership, culture and technology. With that, let's join the conversation.
1: Okay, well, why don't we kick off? Um, Kevin, Kiri, thank you so much for coming in to join us um, virtually via Brisbane. We're down here in Melbourne, so it's all, you know, virtual hearings uh, are the future, and we're certainly living that at the moment. Thank you um, for taking the time out of your day.
2: Our pleasure. Mm -hmm.
1: The reason that we wanted to get you in specifically uh, to speak with us today was because um, you have released a paper Uh, in the last round of Brookings Prize, which is the Society of Construction Law's um, preeminent essay prize for the year last year, which was uh, commended, called Will COVID-19 Cure the Poor Health of the Australian Construction Industry? And it's been, I suppose, nine to 12 months on from the time of that paper. But having read through it recently, a lot of those themes still resonate. and. Um, we wanted to explore some of those things with you today. So maybe if we can start with the diagnosis of the problem, um, and what is wrong, there's a number of things that you've listed there in the paper. Um, maybe Kevin Kerry, I'm not sure who wants to start off, but it's a litany of problems. Uh, who wants to dive in and, and start talking about them?
2: Kiri, yeah. oh, I'll, I'll, always first. I'll, I'll set the scene. Um, so it's it's not unique to Australia by any means, but you came and we came into the complexity of COVID last year with a construction industry that's battling some very very long entrenched issues. Um, the stat that always gets talked about is the failure to achieve productivity growth in the construction industry. So it's not an industry that's yet reformed itself in the same way that manufacturing or health or other industries that have really made huge gains in their productivity growth. It's a very fractured industry. Um, It's got low profit margins. It's slow to take up certain types of technology. If you think about where the banks are going and and where AI is going and how other industries are really uh, sitting at the forefront of, of those uh, those improvements, those developments, uh, they're not always improvements. Um, the construction industry is, 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 is a laggard. It's not a front leader. And, and it's been like this for a long time. The other thread that's really been playing through, of course, is, is the mental health outcomes we get in the construction industry. So we're sitting there with an industry that has so much potential, is leaving so much value on the table. And it has been a conversation with us all for a long time, which is, how do we drive change in across this industry? And that's where we came with our paper at the beginning of last year. We got together and go, well, maybe this is an opportunity for us to change the conversation.
3: Yeah, the, the way the paper came about is I was uh, I was reading, reading a book at the time, right when COVID was sort of hitting, and, and it really inspired me uh, in, in a number of areas to sit back and think about this is a potential, when everyone was saying it, this is a game changer. This is a a generational um, issue uh, or a generational event which will potentially change things greatly. Uh, Those that embrace the change now are probably going to be the ones that are more successful. You know, there's a whole heap of technology that was sitting there which we weren't using. Um, The Zoom calls, obviously, uh, you know, I think in the, is the most obvious to everyone everyone's been complaining for years about wanting more flexibility getting greater participation of uh, women in the workforce for example and uh, you know more flexibility in that regard we've had the capability but we just never used it you've been carrying around uh, you know technology in our pockets for the last 10 years to enable video calls and uh, we, you know we, we've not used it and so we really thought well why don't we explore this a little bit and think about how we can make those changes? Uh, for me, you know, in construction, in contracting in particular, I've I've just seen it so archaic. So much of the methodologies that we use. You know, if you think about contracts, for example, we're just we're, we're doing the only difference between now and 400 years ago in the form of two parties reaching some sort of an agreement is that we're typing it on a laptop and and sending it via an email. But apart from that, um, you are still, we're still writing backwards and forwards to each other uh, in some sort of a one document form. And uh, that's not the way that many other industries in the world uh, work. And, and I think, um, yeah, it, it's, this is the time where we really need to try to embrace those changes.
1: And, and what is, um, in your view, um, the root cause of some of these issues? I mean, is it is it structural? Is it just an unwillingness collectively to embrace new ways of doing things? Is there is there something else? Is it inertia? Um, have you turned your minds to what that might be? I
3: mean, what, one thing I'll, I guess I'll lead off was. With... Construction is different. You know, a lot of there's always a lot of comparisons with the construction industry and productivity with other industries. Um, they talk about particularly in, in Australia. There's always these comparisons. Australia's not a high manufacturing company. It's so making comparisons to countries, particularly I'm thinking like the European Union. Not that it's a country, but uh, when they you know, there's a high manufacturing, high technology base of its manufacturing, then productivity. Um, improvements are really much more easy to attain in those industries and so then because it's such a large proportion of the market it pervades into other industries in australia (laughs) rightly or wrongly where a lot of our money and wealth comes from just either farming animals or digging rocks out of the ground so um it's not that easy to have repeatability of of issues um, or or of product output, Um, and construction is not very repeatable. You know, every construction project is quite, it has different conditions to another. And so it's not naturally a home for just being able to do one construction project, get great productivity, improve a little bit, improve a little bit, and then you have this wholesale industry change. But manufacturing cars, for example, yeah, it really is, or iPhones or whatever it is.
2: But there's still disruption opportunities coming in that. Absolutely,
3: space, absolutely. When we
2: talk about modular and components pieces, and um, trying to break up projects and, and make them more scalable, I wanted to come back to this question you asked about root cause, and this is a debate Kevin and I have. There is there's some work that's starting to be done in the industry about what our uh, what what the underlying culture is that gets rewarded. Um, and and kevin kevin and i don't always agree on this one um i've probably been paying a little bit more attention to the work of the anthropologists out there and that's it makes you see uh the world and decision making and how people behave in, from a slightly different lens and that's that's um one of the joys i have with a lot of the academic work i do really exploring our industry from some other um, um lenses and hopefully for the audience it, uh, for the lawyers who, who are listening to this I cannot say how important it is to go and look at this world from other professional lenses. It, um, it makes you see things with different systems and different patterns. Um, so we talk about the Australian market being an aggressive market uh, or an aggressive culture, um, and I've used that term. Um, a lot of people in the industry have used that term. And I don't even think we necessarily know how we're doing it or that we're doing it deliberately, but I have seen it over and over and over again that when things get difficult, we we revert to very some very adversarial win-lose leadership styles. And what I'm really liking seeing at the moment is acknowledgement of that, but actually what we're starting to see is some of the leaders who go... Actually, you know what? It's not win-lose because we're all losing and they're trying to shift the conversation and and trying to shift the leadership perspectives because I think if we're going to start tackling that one, it has to be at a top level, a concept of treaty. It's not a concept of war. Mm. Um, How do you come together and build a relationship that can solve the problems before it? Um, And if I sit down and reflect on the three themes from our paper, a lot of them are about How do you build a team that has the right information before it, that has the right tools, that is leaning in to solve the problems before it, that has that collaboration mindset and collaboration in that broader sense?
1: Mm. Kevin, um, Kiri mentioned that you don't always agree on that. Um, Is there anything in that that um, you take a different view on?
3: Oh No, not not as a overall perspective i think you know what kiri was referring to and that she has done a lot more work in this area and, and um, reflection is that uh you know there's there's a view that australia is quite different in its approaches uh, you know its adversarial culture etc and so my my question is well why is it I mean, what is it about australia that's unique that is different to the rest of the world and um you know people talk about the middle east being more you know, potentially collaborative or, you know, the UK, et cetera. And I think, well, you know, there's just as many pub fights in the UK on a Friday night, or it's, there's just as much um, you know, male dominated, you know, male dominated sort of culture in the Middle East or more so in the Middle East than, than in Australia generally. So I don't think it's, it's as simple as that. I think there are deeper anthropological elements to it. You know, Kiri's, uh, we, we've discussed this and we've talked about, you know, whether it's part of the culture of the origins of the country with, yeah, and, and I think there's a there's a large part of that, actually, I, you know, look at COVID at how well Australia has, um, Australians generally have just accepted the demands or, or the directions of the government in terms of, you know, border closures or doing whatever you've got to do. Um, and that has not happened in other countries. You know, everyone's been on the streets when it, the government's gotten out of line a little bit too far. That hasn't happened in Australia. So there's definitely. Elements to the culture, which probably do affect, um, you know, I don't think it's a very clean uh, equation. There's probably some you know, polynomials in there for that's that's that'll confuse the lawyers, I guess, generally. <laughs> but yeah, the, the equations are quite complex, I'm sure. So, yeah.
1: That, that's okay, Kevin. We can have a glossary at the end. <laughs> Sorry,
3: Kieran, go on. <laughs> Not that I was ever that brilliant at, at engineering mathematics, but anyway.
2: There you go. An engineer never says that. Yeah. Um, so the thought that po- popped into my head was, um, um, so we've had COVID and COVID is a, pose a complex problem. It was not something that you'd readily foresee or anticipate. It was something that you didn't know at the beginning how it was going to play through. And yeah. I think the question for everyone who, who listening is how did you manage to come together and work with the other participants on the project and solve that? Yeah. Was it solved through the relationship? And then reflecting on you had to build that relationship with a contract that's sitting there that that's theoretically is providing a structure to help you solve the problem that emerged, and and my query always is, did that structure that you built through the contract, how did it impact the behaviors and the capacity of those people to come together and actually solve a complex scenario? So this is a scenario where you don't know what's going to happen next month. You don't know what you're going to have to change. You're going to have to be flexible and work with it. Um, make the best decision based on what you knew at that time. And it it obviously turned into, and it still is a constantly evolving beast that we're dealing with. So for me, that relationship between how you get that group of people coming together and solving the problem before them based on what they know at that point in time and and finding the way through, was it hindered or aided by the contract model that sat with it? And I, I, I suspect if you had a broader debate um there's some great learning for all of the legal profession around what are we putting in contracts that actually became a barrier to solving that problem and i think we're not thinking about that hard enough when we're we're writing contracts we write them for the legal lens we write them for the audience of the judges at the end of the day but they are a really in, they have an awful lot of impact about how those parties come together and solve the problem and i i get concerned that they They become barriers. Barriers because they are hard to understand. The language is the language of lawyers. Um, They're very long documents. They're um, complex to navigate your way through them. So all of these things actually slow the parties down in terms of understanding where their positions are and how it's going to work.
1: Okay, so how do we as an industry improve
2: on that? So we had collaboration as a core theme in our paper Mm -hmm. and collaboration means you actually are able to come together and and achieve that meeting of the minds, that there is one of the strongest elements of collaboration is mutual understanding. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about collaboration, they're not even just talking about the contract. They're talking about how do you get those two parties to get to the point of mutual understanding? And that means the whole contract negotiation process should be understood from that perspective of, we understand how we're going to manage change. We know what steps we're going to do. We know what change is and what change isn't. Collaboration means a huge amount of project management effort in reality to do it well. Um, But it does mean you are designing processes and conversations that take you towards mutual understanding and clarity.
3: You've got really talented people involved in delivering these projects. You want them all rowing the boat in the same direction um, for the best of the project, because no matter what the contract is, the, there's a limit on the liability there at some stage, uh, at some point, and it will not cover off if the project totally fails. Um, you know, one party is always, even though you've got certain rights protected, I mean, Generally speaking, the limit of liability is not going to make your project whole and, your, and successful. So, um, you know, I had a job a couple of years ago and it, it was, you know, a bit adverse, but a little bit adversarial and the client was, was having a go. And, and I said, look, you, you, you know, I think you're nuts. You, you shouldn't be trying to restrict the, the spending and the effort of the people involved. You know, pull them in. Deeper is what you want. You want these people in full on really trying to solve the problems and spend more money to try to solve the problem rather than uh, restricting the spend and and trying to just sort of hide. uh, It's not going to solve the problem.
2: Yeah, I I have a new motto these days, which is that uh, bad news is good news. Uh The most important thing you could do or one of the core things you need to do as a leader to drive project success is to make sure problems are found they're found early and are dealt with and traditional contracting doesn't do that which is why we talk about collaboration because projects are being developed in more and more complex environments and uh the the number of very large projects the mega projects those are the billion dollar plus projects we've got an increasing number of those coming yeah. to market.
3: And, um, we, and we know the outcome, don't we? We know that all these all projects, they're all going to fail. They're all yeah. going to not meet their targets on time and cost and yeah. quality and health and yeah. safety. And these, the these
2: chances these. of it going over budget, over time and not yep. achieve, achieving stated benefits is about 98%. So you know that in advance. And, so, I, and it's yeah. kind of like we actually should stop talking about that as a failure. It is just normal. Hmm. If you're delivering a complex project, what you predict at the outcome is never going to be, um, the what actually ha- happens at the end and it's not bad it doesn't mean that it also means you can't solve it by saying i'm going to you know write a tighter uh, small tighter contract and have more sticks that actually doesn't stop the complexity emerging and playing yeah, out on the right. project and driving the um outcomes that it achieves this is where you come back into collaboration because if You've got a project that's running over multiple years, the technology changes, the Mm -hmm. issues that emerge. The only thing uh, that counts is whether or not the model that you've built for people to deliver that problem allows them to come together and solve the problem, which is why so many jurisdictions are looking at the IPD models. They're looking at the – that's the integrated project delivery models. That's the US model, which is about (laughs) – using the relationship to solve problems, using the collaboration model, um, using the NEC, that's a high project management model. Um, FIDIC are, you know, drafting, you know, the first, you know, global standard collaboration contract that will take a few years to to go uh, to actually produce, but it's started. This... this, the the academic theory and the proof actually is absolutely in the pudding. Once once you've got a complex project, so anything that goes over multiple, more than two to three years, anything that's over that billion dollar mark, a traditional contract is not going to be able to respond mm-hmm. to the challenges. It will break at some point in time.
3: So it's really about pulling the pulling the risk sharing, pulling the. Oh, insurance, pulling everything, pulling it up at a, at a, at a higher level um, of the project, you know, toward the project principle rather than pushing it down towards subcontractors. Yeah. Um, you know, when you can hold all of that at a higher level, it is uh, it's, it's much you get a much better project outcome, overall project outcome. It, of course, requires people to um, to work together and to have uh, more yeah, you know, to be more aware, I guess, and to be smarter and a, more across things. Yeah. Uh, you can't just sort of silo yourself yeah. up and say, "No, my part of the project is only this, and I'm going to protect my little part of the project, and I don't have to worry about anybody yeah. else." You're not going to get a yeah. good project outcome.
2: And that's why we had leadership as one of our one of our themes, wasn't it? Because it's the uh, the leadership of the industry to step up with courage to go. Actually, I want to do it differently. And there are some people doing some great things out there and they are doing things differently and they're getting some great results.
0: And that's a great place to finish part one of the podcast, as we will examine the theme of leadership
1: in part two.
0: Well, that is a discussion that we will be keen to hear more of. Please join us for part two of the podcast series as Sam and Alice speak with Kieran and Kevin about the way forward for the industry. Until next time, we thank you for listening to this episode of Cause High Biz. Please remember these podcasts are for reference purposes only. They should not be relied upon as legal advice and you should always seek legal advice about your specific
2: circumstances.